0: I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's always difficult to analyze comedy. Like Most of the tools at my disposal don't really apply in the same way when it comes to comedy episodes or comedy games or comedy shows or whatever. So I can only discuss things that really occur to me or things that I feel are interesting or worthy really of note. Um, that being said, I did have a thought as I was going through this episode. I myself have said multiple times that the vast majority of the time When Star Trek tries to be funny, it fails. I stand by that statement, but I kind of, I I feel like I understand a little bit more part of the why. It's because when Star Trek tries to be comedy, tries to be funny, it tends to trip up a little bit. When Star Trek tries to be fun, that's when it tends to succeed more. And that's what this episode felt like to me. It was fun. It was just, hey, let's do a a rip on old B movies, and we'll have the Ferengi there, and it'll be great. And the rest of the episode just writes itself at that point, right? This also applies to Troubles and tribulation or Trials and Tribulations, excuse me, and arguably the Trouble with Tribbles. These episodes weren't really designed to be comedy episodes, but they were very fun, right? Compare and contrast Profit and Lace, which was designed to be a comedy episode, and is, in my opinion, the worst DS9 episode ever made. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's it's just interesting to think about, interesting to consider. Uh, that being said, <laughs> I sometimes wonder, like, when it comes to fiction and the crafting of it, if they actually have the actors smoke cigarettes. Like, for example, if I was an actor on Star Trek and they're like, all right, we need you to be smoking in every scene. I'm like, I can't. I'm allergic to tobacco. And they'll be like, oh, uh, like, how do they deal with that exactly? I can't be the only person who has that kind of analogy or that kind of, you know, desire not to smoke. So, <laughs> what do they do in those cases? That's just food for thought. I, I do have to comment on one thing. This episode, probably unintentionally, remember, it's hard to take any of this stuff seriously, but probably unintentionally confirms for me a theory that I've had for a long time that I admit I borrowed from mum. See, uh, we've theorized for some time that the people of Star Trek don't speak English. And I know what you're going to say. Well, of course they don't. That's not what I mean. I mean, as in the humans don't speak English either. That English is not the dominant language. Now, there is the whole translation convection thing with, you know, obviously, of course they don't speak English. And, of course, there's the universal translator thing, even though... If we're being 100% honest, the Universal Translator doesn't actually work the way it should. Let's just ignore all that for a second. I'm willing to say that the Universal Translator exists in order to facilitate people being able to talk to each other. That's something I am more than willing to accept. But I bring this up because we've always thought that they speak something kind of like, you know, basic, for example. You know, like how Star Wars uses Arabesh instead of, you know, English alphabet, that kind of a thing. Um, and the, the main reason this is posited, specifically with regards to this episode, is, Bashir hands uh, Nog a big old pad which just says Earth right on the cover, right? Big English letters. And yet when they get to Roswell, or wherever, they have no actual, like, they don't even mention the thing as existing, the pad. Even though they've been in the shuttlecraft and were able to go around and examine it, they found the command area, they found the sleeping area, right? So you'd kind of think, based on the circumstances, that they would have found the pad. And Given everything we hear in this episode, if they had found a pad with a big old earth on the front, you'd think that would be enough to fuel the paranoia, right? But it's never even mentioned. In other words, the theory here is that earth is actually or whatever, right? That it's something that isn't actually in English. It's in basic, which is kind of something that makes a degree of sense to me as well. Because i got to be honest, someone like Quark especially would probably understand BASIC, at least a little bit, given how much he believes in interactions with people and all that fun stuff. You can't rely on the Universal Trans- Transl- Translator all the time, right? Even uh, Even Starfleet and the Federation in general have pointed out several times how it's actually useful to have someone who doesn't rely on the Universal Translator. This has come up in the original series, in TNG, and in Voyager. So... Right? I mean, it kind of makes sense that he would have, at least, Nog certainly would, given how much studying he's been doing lately, especially on Earth in specific. So you kind of get my point. This is, of course, the pure, the pure realm of theory, and let's be honest, probably doesn't mean anything. But I have to admit, I've always liked the idea that the, that Starfleet, that is to say, Earth, when they first started getting together with the Vulcans, when the Vulcans and them first started their initial, you know, the Vulcan moment, when the Vulcan moment happened, there's this idea that they, you know, at that point in history, Earth spoke a lot of different languages, right? I like the idea that they had sort of made a new language, to, probably with the Vulcans and with their help, and that became Earth Standard. Basic, in other words. That's just an idea that's always kind of appealed to me. And this I, that would actually also explain why people like Hoshi would have been so valuable back in the day. Anyways, <clears throat> moving on. So Nog is getting into the Academy. Okay, I'm willing to buy that. I have a weird question for you guys. How much, if any, of that decision do you think was political? I actually brought this up before in Coming of Age, I believe, back in TNG. The idea that Wesley basically barely didn't make it into the Academy, but that the non-human got in. And the idea of, you know, we've never had one of you in the Academy, and basically that the Federation was playing at politics, which, let's be honest, the Federation does all the time, so it wouldn't really be that much of a surprise. In other words, given how much time and effort it takes, Wesley, who, you know, you can hate him or love him however much you want, the, the, the kid was a genius, how long it took him to get into the Academy until season four of TNG, which is an episode I believe we've covered by this point. I, I have, but I'm pretty sure that episode's come live. Um, given how much time and effort it took Wesley to get into the Academy, and yet Nog gets in basically first try, now you could say, well, of course, Cisco was, you know, sponsoring him. But at the same time... First of all, Picard was definitely sponsoring Wesley, and you can't tell me Picard's name didn't have weight in Starfleet, especially at that point in history. Second of all, the main reason Cisco was involved is because he had to be. Frankie were not a a, uh, a member race, and only member races need a sponsor in order to be sent in, right? I mean, all of this makes sense. So I just kind of say, do you think this is politics that the Federation, Starfleet in particular, I should say, is allowing Nog in? relatively easily now the obvious answer is yes of course they are but i have to point out the unique era we're in here this is a point in time in which we're still still in the phase of recovery from wolf 359 and that is a recovery that well is very important given the events that are going to happen over the next few years it is entirely possible that they have after wolf 359 significantly loosened their restraints on exactly who can apply and why it is worth noting that shortly after Wolf 359 is when Wesley finally got in, despite the fact that he was late. You know, as slot opened up, I believe, is the exact phrasing in uh, the final mission is when that came in. So just just food for thought. I'm curious what you guys think. We do know late well, I don't want to get into that. I don't we'll get to cover that rest of that later. So they mentioned Cousin Gala. He's actually been mentioned several times before. We'll actually meet him eventually. And you know, he's he's finally paid me back, and he's given me a ship. I, I get that Ferengi don't really like each other. I do. I really do. But I'd like to think that it's actually pretty rare that they actively try to murder each other. Remember, the ship that Cousin Gala gave Quark was a very nice fancy ship, one that probably cost him a decent chunk of money. I mean, it was a shuttle, but it was a top-of-the-line shuttle, right? That Rom was able to check over and say, yeah, no, everything's fine. So, why did Gala hate Cork so much to go through all this effort to give him this nice ship and then sabotage it in a very subtle and careful way, specifically to, and I'm going to stress this word again, murder him? What in the ever-living hell? Like, I know that Cousin Gala doesn't like you that much, but that usually doesn't extend to actively trying to kill someone. I mean, I know plenty of people I don't like, and I've never tried to kill anybody. And hopefully never will I try to kill anybody, right? I mean, that's just weird. And actually, if I could be so bold, strangely non-Ferengi, for all of the cutthroat nature of their business arrangements, Ferengi usually don't try to actually kill each other, right? I mean, there are exceptions, of course, just like there's exceptions for everything, but Jesus... That being said, the way that Cork just lights up at the idea of having a ship, that kind of, that, that had a tone with me. I mean, obviously this is Star Trek and, you know, ships are normal and blah, 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 but picture having your own ship in, in Star Trek, for example. Your own ship with warp capable, you know, long distance, we can go all over the place. It's, it's yours. Like, tell me that wouldn't just kind of set off a little bit of <laughs> in the back of your mind, right? Granted, I'm a bit of a ship person, so I admit I'm probably more affected this by most. But I imagine most people would be happy to have a ship, just about any ship, as long as it was, you know, a decent enough ship within the Star Trek setting. Now, in real life, well, nah. No. <clears throat> so, <laughs> there's this nice bit where Jake and Nog, Bashir and O'Brien basically have a goodbye with... Uh, with nog and i kind of realized something as i was watching this episode aaron eisenberg uh does a really good job of having two different smiles he has the completely insincere smile which we've seen a lot of in the past in most of his earlier uh, presentations but then there's this really genuine smile he does and i don't know how else to describe it it's it's so real There's just a lot of genuine enthusiasm and almost... I almost want to use the word joy in his real smile. And it's just a little touching every time you see it. I like to think that Eisenberg's presentation and the continued usage of Nog as a character is part of why Nog became one of my favorites on DS9. You know, I'm probably not at the level of Garrick or Ducat or Oda or whatever, but he's still definitely up there in, like, the top five or whatever. Because there's just something really fascinating about someone who has one step in the door in all directions, right? Because that's kind of what Nog is, the Starfleet Ferengi, the usual member of the Federation and the Star Trek norm, who also has is basically the exact antithesis of the Star Trek norm, right? It's a great dichotomy that works very well. And again, Eisenberg manages to nail it. Anyways, so there's this great scene, and everyone's like gushing about Nog and embracing Nog. Quick question, because I has a thought about this. Do you think everyone is embracing Nog because he's going to Starfleet? And, you know, they are from Starfleet, and therefore, obviously, yeah, you got this. Or because he's trying something? that They're they just embracing him because they've kind of sort of pseudo-adopted him in the family of Deep Space Nine. And they're encouraging him because he's attempting something. It doesn't necessarily matter, at Starfleet. It could, of course, be both, as it's worth noting. Oh, yeah, by the way, just because I've been doing it, notice that Worf is still not a character. What episode is this? Like, what do we have to here? Hang on, let me check the thing here. This is not episode eight, technically episode seven of uh, season four. Worf is still not a character. And I only point that out because I'm pretty sure next week is when Warf finally starts becoming a character. And again, I'm only pointing that out to give you an idea of just how long in advance people do work when it comes to television, as I myself have indicated. So, Rom finds out about the chemo site through fairly logical deduction. That's cool. Nog is going through the, the historical records and finds this picture of Captain Sisko as Gabriel Bell. Something about that amused me. Probably kind of a hint that this is also a time travel episode. And then Rom techno babbles and then 1947. Now, believe it or not, I'm looking at my notes. I have literally already gone through half my notes. I don't, I just don't have a lot to say about the past section. The past section is fun. It's just, Fun! It's just them poking fun, and having a ball with it, and just kind of embracing the silliness of it. Everyone involved in the creation, there was actually like five or so writers who all worked on this episode, along with several uncredited rewrites. They got several decent guest stars. Most of these are recurring guest stars. Um, and, uh, Charles Napier is the one that really stuck stuck for, for me, the guy who's you know usually known for being the military guy, and he plays that in this very episode. Uh, he was one of the hippies back in the worst TOS episode, in my opinion. Um, we got Megan Gallagher back. She's a semi-recurring guest star. Um, of course, uh, Grodenchik and Eisenberg absolutely nail it. You know, there, there's quite a bit of really good guest star work. And each of them was basically told, okay, I want you to play this caricature. But rather than being one-dimensional, they come across as fun. I hate to keep repeating myself there, but you kind of get my point. So, you know. They talk to the scientist guy, and they're like, all right, look, scientist guy, we need you, the scientist guy, to go and try and communicate with these people. Now, they start to talk to them, and the universal translators are broken. Very convenient. Uh, Obviously, we needed that so we could have the comedy scene. This is also probably one of the only times they mention the idea that universal translators are things that are imprinted or or, uh, embedded I should say within someone in this case specifically in the in the ear cavity for the Ferengi I wonder if that varies from species to species we know that the computer itself can serve as a universal translator although that's also a little bit more of the translation convection because honestly what should have happened in those cases is we hear someone going and then over that we hear another voice saying I'm talking to you now in my language that is not English you know something like that Um. (laughs) one of the other things i like about this episode is it constantly makes fun of you know old humans i guess for lack of a better way to put that you know oh my god they'll buy poison you could buy tobacco at the stores they'll buy poison they'll buy anything and quark starts to get really big plans you know one of the things i find funniest is that quark is actually a victim of vampire ego syndrome here now, on the off chance that you have no idea what I'm talking about, which I imagine most of you don't, uh, on the list of loreums that I have on my website, plug, 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 there's a, uh, a concept that I call the vampire ego syndrome. It's when someone has a minor advantage over those around them, and it immediately goes to their head. And they're like, oh, I am all powerful. And that is exactly what Quark does here. He has the advantage of technology and knowledge over these people, and that's it. He is actually very weak and in an extremely bad bargaining position overall and he is thinking about literally taking over the entire planet and then taking over the entire galaxy he is literally just oh yes i i will have everything i will rule on high as sultan and yet he ha- he is speaking from a position of absolute weakness again vampire ego syndrome Vampire Ego Syndrome also kind of uh, describes the fact that most people don't seem to understand how careful you'd have to be if you did have a legitimate advantage over those around you. In other words, to give you an example, and this is relevant to the episode, I swear, imagine if you had a superpower, like, like in a comic book or whatever, and your superpower was to be really strong or to heal people or to shoot laser beams, okay? It sounds cool, right? Well, if you have a brain, you're going to be extremely careful about never showing that ever because if you actually make it clear to any kind of governmental body or any kind of organization with the resources and investment necessary to try and do something about that, they're going to come after you. You have to sleep at some and especially if you're going to try to do things like have money or whatnot. You're basically in the system. So... You have to make sure people either don't find out about it at all or you immediately get in bed with one of the organizations to try and keep the others at bay because you are now a commodity. And you don't have enough power to hold off everyone forever indefinitely. You'd have to be at Superman levels to be to be able to accomplish that. You have to be very high tier, right? And the same applies to Quark. And again, this is why Quark is um, an idiot in this episode, just to say that as nicely as I possibly can. Because he's thinking, well, I've, I've got all the cards. But in truth, he's got, like, a pair eight, a pair of eights. Or maybe just, like, an ace high, and that's all he's got in his hand. He doesn't have anything special. And he's trying to milk that for as much as it's worth. Now, I know we just had an episode talking about greed and gambling, but this is a bit much. And, of course, it immediately backfires on him, and he doesn't even have to deal with any of the severity that he could have. This could have gone much worse. I mean, look what happened to Zoidberg when he ended up at Roswell. So... He immediately crumbles to a guy with some drugs. Notice they try to drug him like five times before they try to do anything really bad. And the threat of being attacked with a scalpel. That's it. Like nothing significant at all. They could. This could have gotten really, really dark really, really fast. I'm glad they didn't, consequently. I'm glad they kept it fun. But that's the whole point. You've just got this guy like, I knew it. I knew you Martians were... I'll use my pen as an example. I knew you Martians... We're coming after us. We're going to stop you. And and it's, the whole scene is just ridiculous, right? But you can see how they're immediately in over their head. In fact, the one person who actually has enough of a brain to be able to outthink their way through the situation is Nog. And, of course, he's actually had training to this effect, so that probably helps a little bit. So I'm looking at the thing here. What I find funny is there's this great scene between Cork and Napier as uh, Denning, General Denning or whatever. And... Quirk is basically smoozing all over the scene, leaving a trail of slime as per his usual. And, of course, Denning calls him out on it. You remind me of a huge car salesman. You know, whoop, that kind of a thing. What I love most about that scene, though, is Quirk is actually telling the absolute truth. Think about this for a second. Imagine how valuable transporters, warp drive, replicators, and medical technology from Star Trek's era would be to us now, never mind 72 years ago. Picture that for a second. Picture the incredible value of just the medical tech and nothing else. A properly designed, uh, one of the THX or whatever, tricorders, would be incredibly useful just by itself, just for its ability to diagnose. Never mind the incredible value of a replicator, which is basically an invaluable tool, Right? I mean, you can kind of see how Quark is legitimately offering them something way, way too useful. And then, of course, he threatens to sell to the Russians instead in 1947. I also love how Quark has no idea how to uh, maneuver his way through this situation. I've said before that Quark is a weird liar because he's not actually that good of a direct liar. Cork is better at misdirect lying, when rather than saying no, he says, well, I don't know if that's really true. And what do you think about this other thing that's completely unrelated? He likes to redirect the situation. He does this to the general at this one point. Or admiral, whatever he is. Um, Oh, yeah, we've been watching our people for a long time. Baseball. Root beer. Darts. Atom bombs. You know, it's just... (laughs) Uh... So then there's this bit where Cork, excuse me, Nog, sorry, insists on getting his ears rubbed by the lovely woman, Megan Gallagher as Faith Garland. Really, Nog? Really? I mean, I get that he's at that age. (laughs) So what's nice about this is, as I said, Cork has been kind of an idiot this entire time. And then Odo pops in, and what I like about this is this is actually a nice counterbalance, because Cork is stupid to the point of ridiculous... But Odo is pragmatic to the point of ridiculous. Odo thinks solely and explicitly of getting out of here and getting back to their time, whereas Quark is thinking solely and explicitly of staying here and trying to establish his new empire. It's like three or four references now I've made with with Quark's thing here. And, of course, in the middle of them is Rom, the one who can actually think of a way to deal with this whole situation. I also like... I mentioned how Nog was the only one smart enough to out you know, outmaneuver the situation. Of course, what he does is he tells MP Guy, I'm sorry, I forget who he, what his name was, exactly what he wants to hear. Nope, you're right. This is all an invasion. We are a threat. We are here to destroy your men and claim your women. Which, if, if you actually sit and think about it for a second, is actually kind of ridiculous. But that's, of course, part of the point. Their expectations are kind of ridiculous. If you've paid attention to any of the science fiction from the 40s or even the 50s, you kind of see why this sort of a thing was this sort of thing that someone would immediately latch onto. Of course! It makes so much sense! So then they get the hell out of there. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry, quick note. We're going to invade here! And he just slaps the map rather than pointing to it. And the guy's like, Where? And I was like, Here, right here. You're going to invade Cleveland? Sorry. <clears throat> So, uh, <laughs> and then there's this bit where, you know, she's like, aren't you guys going to get in trouble for helping us? Well, no, uh, you guys coerced us with your um, insidious mind control powers. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. And I, what I like best about this is there's this sort of weirdly universal understanding as all, all attempts at subterfuge, all attempts at manipulation, and all attempts at outthinking or whatever are just dropped. And instead, it's just Quark being Quark which is ironically when he's his most affable, at least in my opinion, and Nog being Nog and Rom being Rom, and they're just basically chatting with these people like, yeah, okay, we got to get out of here. And there's this great bit. There's going to be this vast alliance of planets, and Rom, with the tone as if he's correcting her, is like, Federation of planets. And she's like, what? No, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. I only point this out. (laughs) <laughs> I like Star Trek quite a lot, but Star Trek tends to have this thing where it behaves as if um, the Federation of planets is basically the logical—if I might use the word—natural progression of things. It's a very common theme throughout Star Trek. Roddenberry himself always posited that idea that eventually, you know, this would happen. There was even the idea back with Edith Keeler all the way back in TOS that she basically had visions of what would actually become because that was the way things are supposed to go, like, like fate or whatever you want to call that. Um, several of the books have also concerned with the idea of eventually the federation just grows and grows to encompass everything because everyone is eventually accepted and welcomed and blah, blah, blah. That's a nice thought. I do admit that. Um, it's just funny to me because I felt like just a little bit of that here with Miss Garland where she's like, no, someday there will be a great alliance of planets. <laughs> So then we get to the end of the episode. Like I said, I just don't have much to say about some of the specifics. Although I do like how Odo was not only competent, but able to effortlessly infiltrate this place. I mean, considering shapeshifters can effortlessly, even Odo can effortlessly infiltrate the modern era of the 2400s or 2300s or whatever, of course he'd be able to infiltrate 1947. I'm going to look that up really quick. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is the 2400s. I was right. 2372 is when this episode happens. Anyways. So of course he can infiltrate 1947, that's just a duh. But then they head back home and it's like, ah, the shuttle's gone. Now we know the real reason the shuttle's gone. It's because we don't want Quark to have a ship because that gives him another tool in his arsenal that we'd have to deal with in the future. Screw continuity. But I mention this because apparently the shuttle was in perfectly good condition in basically every way except for the fact that it had that sabotage built into its control systems. Couldn't you just fix that? Especially since you're at Earth. Couldn't you just be like, hey, listen, could you help me give a look over this? Anybody has got a chance, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Oh, hey, here we go, fix, 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 and now you've got a working shuttle. Instead, they sell the shuttle. Keep in mind, it was emphasized this was a top-of-the-line, actually-in-good-condition shuttle in order to get the the fare to get back. I know D-Space-9 is a little bit of a trip from Earth, but really? Ah, well, whatever. Status quo maintained. Nog is now at Starfleet Academy. I hope he does well there, and I will see you guys next time.